I'm Anthony Fio, and you're listening to the Talk Carby to Me podcast. There's a quote that I've come to like, and it, it gets me thinking a lot, especially in terms of humans, how we age, and how we view age. Uh, and it comes from Christopher McDougall. He's the author of Born to Run. And it's, you don't stop running because you get old. You get old because you stop running. One of the thoughts that that brings out of me is when you look at the difference between like an adult and a child, whether that be in daily life or uh, in the gym or in a training situation, usually the child has a lot more freedom of movement most of the time. They're less stiff, they're less rigid. They, they haven't really been impacted by the lifestyle choice that the human grows up and eventually goes on to. I think far too soon we start to see some of those signs of stiffness, uh, lack of use, lack of mobility. And we start to say, oh, we're getting old, when in reality that window could be open a lot longer. Uh, for most of us with various interventions and training and exercise and stuff like that. Yeah. Like I'm turning 55 this year and really, yeah. And uh, it's uh, may not look like it externally, but internally, certainly um, there's some things you just can't change. So example would be um, my eyesight and my reading vision is, is gone horrible in the last few years. So, um, I had to get progressive lenses and, uh, so I could read and, and see things properly. Um, and there's just little things like your bladder, you know, is less elastic. And so obviously you, you can't hold as much, uh, in your bladder and you got to let it go a little more and, and, and just stuff where you're like, ah, damn, getting old sucks. Right. Uh, but certainly running, uh, for me it is a lot of work. Like I have to approach it from the point of view of, okay, I have to do these things in the right order and I have to put a, a more time into it because if I don't, my body's totally unprepared. And, and you'll find as you get older, you just don't adapt as easily. Um, like you said, as kids, they can do anything and they don't have to warm up uh, really. And uh, if I look at like, I have a two-year-old dog who's a Vizsla and it's like a hunting dog. And he doesn't warm up for anything. Like he could be lying flat, sleeping for eight hours. We take him out as soon as he sees a squirrel. It's like a hundred miles per hour. So, you know, if you are aging and you have and you still want to run, uh, it takes a lot of work. You can't do too much. You can't do too little. You have to hit the sweet spot all the time, and that includes all the stretching that you have to do after, and all the recovery work, and you got to eat properly and hydrate properly and sleep properly. Uh, and then you have to warm up properly. So when I, uh, we have one of those curved treadmills in our home. So I, I do tempo runs and intervals and other runs. And the first couple of steps, you know, for the first few minutes and just looking at my heart rate, I have to put in a, a gradual effort and it, and I can just feel like every joint, I can feel like the muscles are tight and I have to put in a good amount of effort to get a proper warm up in where I didn't necessarily have to do that, uh, you know, in my twenties, um, you could just kind of go, I mean, uh, it would be better if you did a proper warm up. I used to do track and field and long jump and triple jump. And, um, you noticed if you didn't do a proper warm up, what the repercussions would be. But certainly now that I'm in my fifties, I can't get anything done without a proper warm up and getting that circulation going and making sure all the muscles and tendons and ligaments are supple and, so it is, it is frustrating. And, and like you said in your quote, 
if I stop doing these things, I'm just going to stop altogether. And my body's going to say like, nope. Right. So, uh, you have to push, you have to push in the right amounts and, um, you got to tick off all the boxes. Otherwise it's, it's a very, very difficult proposition. For sure. What, one of the, one thing that I've noticed in my own running, uh, typically my, what my running week will look like mid distance running. Uh, and I like to work in a day where I hit the track and I sprint, um, going through tempo runs, acceleration runs, falling starts, stuff like that. The first like mile or first half mile to a mile, even after I warm up is always super difficult for me on my endurance runs. Um, I remember years prior, you know, I could just, Hey, time to go. Let's go. As I've aged, I've definitely noticed that that first half mile is like extremely difficult. Um, it, it, it's, it's really funny because I generally, I'm, especially in my circle of friends and, you know, trainers and colleagues, uh, I generally don't spend too much time on my warm up uh, in, in general. So I might do some, uh, I might usually, you know, hit up some running mechanics. Um, I'll do a couple stretches, not a ton of it. I'll do some air bike work. Um, and then kind of, I like, I don't go in at like a, like a, a max effort for like an exercise or I wouldn't go directly go into a sprint. Um, but I speed, I kind of get into it a little quicker, but for, for me, endurance wise, when I go on like a longer distance run, I kind of tend to notice that, that, that beginning, that first half mile to mile is literally the hardest part of the entire run, regardless of any distance going beyond that. Yeah, no, it's, um, and I don't know, I don't know if it is, um, a biochemical thing. I don't know if it's a. Uh, like hormonal. I don't know if it's, it's just a circulatory thing. Like I try to look at my heart rate as part of that warm up, And, and I've, I've messed around recently with, um, the device called a Moxie monitor, which measures blood flow through with, uh, infrared light. And, uh, all of these things have shown essentially that my response to exercise has slowed compared to a younger person. Like I'll put it on younger people and and their blood blood flow levels are a lot more immediate and 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 complete c compared to mine. So um, there is a slowing of that response. And I don't. And I usually a lot of these things when you get older are because you know evolution or whatever biology has, has shown that we can't get going quickly because it's dangerous, right? So I have lost contractile ability. I've lost elasticity. I've lost maybe blood flow, uh, you know, uh, properties because, uh, you don't want to break something, right? My vertical jump used to be over 30 inches and now I'm lucky if it's over 20 inches. Um, and maybe that's because my, you know, my brain is saying like, Hey, you're going to wreck yourself. Right. When we start talking about these Achilles tendon injuries, uh, in the NFL, um, you know, the older guy would, would be the guy getting those injuries, but it's obviously changed now, but, but I'm saying there's like a, there's a limiter on our body. I think that happens, uh, that allows, that doesn't allow us to do these things. It doesn't allow us to run as fast and, and maybe it's just a protective mechanism. So overriding that protective mechanism or, you know, hacking it or whatever you want to call it, I think is part of that process. Now you don't want to do it haphazardly. You want to make sure you're, you're doing all the right things in the right order. But I think that that seems to be what it is it almost seems like when i try and sprint it seems like something is holding me back 
right? Like, you know, your best friend or somebody is saying like, no, we're not going to let you go this fast because of these reasons. Um, so I find it very interesting. Like, do you abide by that or do you kind of try to push into it? And I'm, I'm trying to do a bit of both. It's super funny that you say the, uh, it feels like something's holding you back when you, when you start sprinting. Yeah. Um, the, the thought that, that I've had sometimes on a couple of my sprints is, you know, like when you're dreaming and you're trying to run, but you just can't go. Yeah. It's almost like that feeling and it, like there's no particular reason. And it's like, Oh, like what, what's going on here? Like almost like a governor of sorts. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think that's exactly what's at play. Right. And then I don't know if you've done this where you've done a couple of sprints and, and then somebody videos you and you think, Oh, I'm flying. And then you look at the sprint and you're like, no, I look like an old guy running. Um, so there, <laughs> there's some distorted reality happening for sure. Absolutely. I've, I've recorded myself running. Uh, it's not a pretty sight. I remember, uh, in high school, I was on the football team and we would do run suicides. You know, if we gave up too many touchdowns or if we lost the game, I always thought I was one of the, the fastest kids on the team. Uh, hindsight 2020, like as I look back and you know, everyone was always like, Oh, you always look really weird when you're running. Like in my head, I'm running, like I'm the flash, like I'm, you know, perfect form. I can go to the Olympics, like in, but visually, uh, minimal arm swing, uh, leg drive wasn't enough. Uh, knees weren't coming up high enough and stuff like that. And like hindsight is always 2020 and now going through running dr drills and some of the sprint mechanics that you've gone through, I find like, Oh, I see what the issue was in my youth as far as like why what the difference was what I thought was happening versus what the reality of that was. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I trained and competed in track and field in like the 1980s and maybe the early nineties. And it wasn't as easy to get video feedback as it is now. Right. So I, you kind of relied on the coach to tell you what to do. And if you're doing it right, maybe once in a while you saw a video, but it's almost like, um, when you, when you're younger and you hadn't heard your voice, it sounded foreign to you. Cause it, you know, it sounds different when it's played back to you when it's sure. recorded. Right. I think it's kind of the same thing. You have a thought in your head or a perception of how you look. Uh, and then when you see it differently, it kind of, you kind of go like, Oh, right. So we don't, I think it's different nowadays. Everybody's always kind of, you know, the whole selfie effect, you kind of see yourself more, um, now. And so you're used to it. Um, so I, I, you know, as a coach, I've tried to figure out what is the optimal amount of video feedback that you give somebody, because you don't want to give them too much. I think you want to give them some sort of ability and awareness to, to, to solve it on their own through kinesthetic awareness or whatever you want to call it, spatial awareness. Um, so, you know, it's, it's every once in a while I'll show them a video and then I'll give them, you know, an ample amount of reps to kind of resolve it and then show them again. Um, so I, I think that's, that's, that's the one thing, you know, you're, you're trying to be careful of is, is some sort of overexposure to the feedback. Cause I think they might lose their own self-awareness of it. Like, uh, without having that video. So I don't know. It's interesting. Oh, for sure. And I think the same goes for queuing, uh, when you're doing strength training, um, simple generally seems to be the most effective or there's kind of like a, this is like the go get cue. Like if we're going to do nothing else, right. We're going to do this, this one part. Do you find that when you are coaching sprint clients where maybe there's just one specific thing that we're going to build off of and start there? And if so, what is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I try to say the least amount during a session 
because I do understand, and I know this was my case uh, as an athlete, that just because somebody tells you to do something, it doesn't mean you're going to get this instantaneous correction right uh, on the spot, right? So if somebody says, lift your knees more, it may take a number of reps or how you land or where you put your hand or where you're looking. Um, and, and you'll see this in any, in any biomechanical effort, whether you're shooting a basketball or throwing something, it does take several reps and it may take several sessions to resolve a technical error. Um, if somebody corrects it immediately, uh, I'm always concerned about retention. So you want to, you want to evaluate over a, a lot larger sample size. So more repetitions, more sessions. Um, so I'm, I'm very cognitive of, of that whole effect. And so if I'm saying something constantly, it keeps, it keeps resetting the table, right? So if you like the, the common, um, cue I use is just up. So that might be get your hands up, that might get your hips up, get your knees up. But I just want you to think of opposing gravity. So I want everything to kind of rise. So I just use the word up, one syllable, pretty intuitive, right? Up. Um, and usually that that solves a lot of problems, um, whether it's postural, whether it's a limb movement. Um, so I don't have to say anything else. If I If I say, take your hand, put it up here, hold it up here. You know, it's just a lot of information. It can, it can muddy the the message. So I'll say up and then I let them go through four or five reps. And then I might say up again. Um, and usually it resolves itself. So I, I, you know, I think there's a level of patience as a coach or an instructor that you have to have when you're teaching people and you're not always going to get instant gratification, right? This whole idea of delayed gratification is so important. Um, especially in learning. So, you know, do we want to rush it? Do we have to rush it? Most of the time, no. And that's why I think I get a lot of success in rehab scenarios of teaching people. So somebody's been injured and then we teach the mechanics as part of the recovery and the rehab because typically you have more time, right? It's just a, it's a delayed process because it needs to be. So that's when I make uh, a lot of significant changes is this rehab right? Whether it's hamstring rehab, ACL rehab, whatever. Um, I think you can make a lot more progress and it's more of a one-to-one. Whereas if somebody's not injured, you have 30 athletes you're coaching. It's hard to get that message across. So yeah, th- there's a patience that has to, to come with this whole learning process. So is there like, when you look at a, a human and then say they're age, you know, 13 and they're athletic, they're into sports. Is there like a window in which they can get the most out of sprint training, athleticism? And when does that, when do we see that start to kind of taper off uh, in, in athletes specifically? Well, I, I think it really depends on their tr- training history. So if you get somebody at 13 and they haven't really had any formal training, I think that obviously there's a huge upside. They're going to have a huge potential to improve as long as somebody hasn't, you know, ruin them before then. And I think that's a problem too, is where you might have some parents uh, who are a little overzealous and have been throwing a lot at the kid from ages, what, eight to 14, eight to 13. Um, And they may be a little tapped out on several levels, right? Physiologically. um, And then things change because of a growth spurt biomechanically, but then even just psychologically, maybe the kid is burnt out. And they're not as receptive to coaching later on. So I think 
I think when you get somebody at that age, you're also thinking about, okay, well, where are we going to take them from here? And this whole idea of multilateral training and, and, and multi-sport, I think is still important. You still want to give them good information on their mechanics and, and, and how to run properly and improve their locomotion. But you're, you're not like, even with my own kids, we were never thinking about, oh, we want to make them the best runners now. It's like, let's make, make them play other sports. I'll give them a few things to think about. And organically, they've turned out to be relatively decent athletes. Could they have been better? Sure. But I'm always thinking about what are the uh, mental health implications, too, of, of really, you know, surrounding them with too much information and too much pressure and stress around that. So they've developed pretty good um, and they're good humans and they do well in school. And so uh, I'm thinking of the contextual environment for them and just making sure that, okay, yes, they're improving. Are they improving? Are they getting better? And, and certainly there was a window of opportunity of that, you know, going through puberty and growing and just giving them enough so that it didn't overstress them and create, you know, too many, uh, injury issues, overuse injuries, and just keeping them excited about training. So I think you're always weighing all these things like, yes, they're getting the physiological stress. Yes. We're giving them some biomechanical cues. Um, their awareness is pretty good, but they don't hate me as a parent. They don't hate training. You know, I think you have to keep all that in perspective as well. Yeah. You mentioned overuse on youth athletes. Do you think it might play a role in some of the instances where you might find a, a youth athlete get injured because they originally might've been someone who they were looking to play football and due to like the, the rise in CTE or the risk, uh, maybe they choose to, instead of just playing football, now they are a soccer player and a basketball player. And then they do baseball in the spring and then in the summertime, they might do something like a flag football. So there's more cumulative activity. Do you think that plays a role at all in uh, what we see sometimes in youth athletes? I think so. If, if they do what you're saying in terms of that multi-sport approach, they're going to get different exposures to different types of activities and movement qualities. And um, assuming, you know, the coaches aren't, you know, psychos, right? Um, you know, the opposite of what I've seen is you see the kid who's the ice hockey player, cause I'm in Canada. Right. And then that's all they do. Um, and so, you know, if you're an ice hockey player and you're on the ice a lot, well, what happens? Well, you're going to get shortened hip flexors cause you're over it, always over in the skating position. Um, you know, and it, it just changes your mechanics and, and overuses certain tissues. If you're in football, um, American football, you know, you're in cleats and a lot of the times the youth level they're in on turf. And so maybe there is degradation happening at the tendon level because, you know, things grip a little harder and the ligaments are getting stretched. So I think that multiple exposure, if you're on a basketball court, it's different, right? Versus a soccer field versus the requirement, which is longer runs, a little more continuous, uh, where football is reset, go again, hit, you know, whatever. Uh, and then baseball is completely different altogether. So it's, I think that model is going to produce healthier athletes in the long run. The unfortunate side is that early specialization does work. Like it, if you take some, we know that we, we know that Tiger Woods and all these other athletes, 
you know, uh, um, uh, succeeded because they started early and they specialized. So then you move up the ranks and, and, and there's always going to be a poster child for that. Like, oh, they started early and they're really good, but we don't see all the, you know, collateral damage from that approach. And I think, you know, even hearing from friends who, uh, a friend of mine, Art Horn, uh, work for, works for the Boston Celtics and he was in the medical side and then now he's in the administrative side, but he was telling me going through the NBA combine and seeing all the younger prospects coming through, um, with like surgeries that they've been through already. Um, and the, the amount of hardware that they found in their legs and their ankles from fractures or feet screws and, you know, plates and things like that. So this wasn't something that was an issue 20, 30 years ago, but now because they're playing in the winter, they're playing in the spring, they're playing in summer leagues and all they're doing is playing basketball. Um, there's a lot of wear and tear and there's a lot of similar movement patterns that are being repeated over and over again. And some kids are going to be resilient and survive. And some kids aren't. Um, I even talked to somebody about, you know, the impact of just doing one sport on the cardiac system. And uh, you'll see there's these these uh, instances where people have, our kids have cardiac events um, and, you know, pass out. And um, there's been a couple of them lately, uh, obviously a high profile one. And he thinks it's because they're doing just the same activity over and over again, and it's not stressing the heart in different ways to provide more resiliency. Um, so it, you know, it, it affects the, the thickness of the heart wall and it, it affects the electrical system that, that fires the heart and all that. So I'm like, Oh, wow. I never even thought of that. So, um, you know, these fatalities, um, could be a result of the preparation, right. And, you know, you don't think of that till it happens, but I, I think, having a well-rounded approach is always going to be better. And, and maybe you don't make it to the NBA or the NFL, but maybe you still have a successful collegiate career. So I think, you know, you have to weigh these things and, uh, you know, plan around that for your, if you have kids. Yeah. One of the data points that I came across doing a little bit of research is that approximately there's about 200,000 ACL tears annually. Data might be skewed a little. This is in the United States. Uh, data might be skewed a little bit, so feel free to add context there uh, if there is. Um, and it seems like female younger athletes seem to be more prone to them. Is there a specific reason for that? There's been a number of um, theories put out there. Some of it related to the preparation. So you know, and I don't know if that's the same now, but in the past, it's been well. You know, female athletes weren't doing the same amount of preparatory work, strength and conditioning, strength training. But I think they're doing more of that. I think there were some issues with regards to uh, the hip to knee angle. I think they call it the Q angle and uh, yeah. it biomechanically sets them up for a little more stress and torque through there. Probably less ability to uh, internally rotate uh, just based on the pelvic angle. And, and then off, uh, there's other things in relation to, um, the menstruation cycle and, and how it affects their ligaments. So I think there's a number of things going on there. Um, you know, I, I found when I worked with women's soccer at the collegiate level and even at, at higher levels, I found there were like really 
aggressive like they you know like they would go in harder for some of the tackles and stuff <laughs> like that and I, I didn't want to use the word reckless but i'm just like wow um and and so i don't know if that has anything to do with it just their their approach to the game but it's certainly multifactorial and i don't know if it's if if those numbers have improved you would think with all the science and sports science and, and everything now the research that we'd have some improvements but it seems to be going in the opposite direction for all these injuries. It seems to be getting worse. So it is very uh, concerning, right? Uh, at the pro level, at the youth level. And, and you know, I, I, it has to go back to some of those things we talked about. The multilateral development, the amount of effort going into their preparation, rather than just jumping into competition and sports-specific practice all the time. I think that's probably the answer. And, and, and you can talk about things like turf and shoes, uh, exacerbating these things. And I think that's all they are. They're, they're amplifiers of, of the, the problem, which is if they have poor mechanics, they're fatigued, uh, the tendons are overstressed, then you add uh, a grippy shoe on a grippy surface. Well, that's going to amplify everything, but I don't think that's the main reason. Yeah, the, the grass versus turf issue has come up uh, a lot recently, especially in the last probably two to three years. Uh, players themselves have been a little bit more vocal about it in the NFL, uh, especially usually after they play a game at MetLife. Mm -hmm. um, what, as far as like what, they're, what they might be experiencing on the difference between I'm running and I plant in turf or I plant in grass, is it that the turf is just a harder surface so there's more like reverb through the muscle or is it um, just a harder surface? So there's not as much give to it. Like what, what might they be? What might lead them to that thought? I think it's a perception. I think it's, I think it's that, that it's been put out there that it's a, you know, it's a potential cause. So everybody's like gravitating towards it. I don't think the reality is, is the same. I think, I think there's differences. I think there's variability in the surface and that's the problem. So if you, if you talk to most people in the NFL, um, most of the practice fields are grass. So in training camp and um, in, in in season practice, unless the weather's horrible, uh, they're going to be practicing on a grass surface, a natural grass surface. Now, that grass surface is well manicured. Some of them are hybridized. So they are very resilient, uh, genetically modified grass surfaces. And they're much more resilient than maybe what's at the average park uh, you know, near your home. So if, if like, uh, I've been down on the field in Arrowhead, it's a natural grass surface. It looks like turf. It, you, <laughs> I'm in my tennis shoes and I'm running around. I'm like, wow, this is pretty grippy. So the grass surface isn't that much different than the turf surface. Now where things differ and, and what you'll, what you'll hear is the, the athletes don't want to practice. They, they don't want to practice on turf. So they'll do whatever they can to be on a grass field. Cause I think generally it's a little, it makes you less sore. Now I think the problem with the turf isn't that it's hard or sorry. It's not that it's, it's, it's just different. So if you go on a new turf field, it feels almost pillowy. Like it's almost too soft, but the problem is that's superficial. There's this like softness to it. And then when you get beneath that softness, it's very hard. So there's not uniformity. It's like you're kind of floating on the soft part. And then when you hit hard, you'll go right to the, which is more of a gravel base, a sand and gravel base underneath. And then it's very hard. 
So I think what's happening is it's not the turf is hard. I think that it tricks your nervous system. So when you hit the soft part on the top, your, your body's thinking, oh, okay, it's soft. So I, I have more of a, a, a compliant surface. And so maybe the muscles and tendons tune themselves to that soft surface. And then all of a sudden you hit a hard surface below. It's like a friend of mine was saying, like, you know, there's a reason why your dashboard is stiff. Like it's soft, but it's stiff. It's if it was cotton balls, then eventually you go through the cotton balls and hit the, the metal frame of the car, right? So I think the same thing is happening with the turf. It's creating a confusion where if you're not tuned to it and your body isn't tuned to it, the muscles don't fire in the right sequence. And then that creates the joint injuries, the ACLs, the Achilles, whatever. Um, and if you're practicing on a grass surface through the entire week, and then you go to MetLife and you're on this different surface, that's why it's a confusing proposition to your brain and your nervous system. So I think it's much more complicated than my foot gets caught in the turf uh, or it's a hard surface like AstroTurf. It's way more complicated. And even within the turf surfaces, they're all different too. So if you, um, you know, go to MetLife and then you go to um, Arizona or Vegas where they have the rolling grass turf or grass that they have there, that feels different. It could be slippery. Like the last Super Bowl, people are sliding around. So when I went to the NFL Medical Summit last year and presented, there was a turf or there was a surface guy there who is uh, the NFL expert. And he's saying there's 30 different fields. And that's what that's how he led. He's like, you can talk about grass versus turf, but all the turf surfaces can feel different, all the grass surfaces. And so you have 30 different surfaces that you're trying to get calibrated to as an athlete. Um, and it's very difficult because you're practicing at home on the same surface all the time. And then you go to a different surface. So it's just all of these factors and variables make it very difficult and confusing for an athlete to get prepared, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. I think a, a great example of what you're just talking about as well, uh, Aaron Rodgers, who probably had the most uh, high profile Achilles rupture this season. Um, he plays, you know, 17, 18 years in Lambo, which to my understanding is a grass field, uh, and then goes, signs the Jets, who go Jets. Um, and then you have, you know, one minute into the game. And granted, I mean, the way that hit happened, I feel like with just that angle that might happen on any surface. Uh, but that's a, it could be a, one of those things, kind of like what you were just alluding to. Yeah, and there, there's other factors that we don't know about that led up to that. But the, there certainly was a calf injury earlier in the offseason. Um, and so how did they handle that? Like how, uh, because in any of the research that I've gone through, and I've gone through a lot of it in the last four years, um, if you under train or you unload, so say he has a calf strain and he unloads that, that, that Achilles tendon for, I don't know, three weeks. Uh, it only takes about two weeks for cells to to deteriorate in a tendon if it's unloaded. So if you're doing too little, you're going to have uh, mass loss in that that structure. If you do too much and you degrade it, there could be problems too. So if you go from unloading for a long period of time and then you hit training camp, maybe you go from a weakened tendon that gets degraded during training camp and then it's set up. Like none of these tendons from what I understand from the research, 
None of these tenons are perfectly healthy, thick tenons that just snap because of the surface or the hit or the, it's, there's some sort of degradation happening, whether it's underuse or overuse. So I think until we understand that better and, and what is the sweet spot for training those tendons, uh, it's very hard to, to prevent, right? It's, it's cause it, I went through the last four years and trying to figure out what month were all these attendant injuries happening. And you think, well, intuitively it would be preseason and training camp, but it's not, there was one year when it was the la it was December and there was one year when it was November that was the most. So, you know, I don't know. Um, but, but certainly there's a wear and tear factor or a disuse factor that leads to this. And the, whatever the hit was or whatever the movement was, um, was just the straw that broke the camel's back. So it's, it's very complicated. The fantasy football manager in me loves the research uh, that you've been posting, that you've been going through, that you just alluded to, that we're going to talk about. I always look at it as a coach and, you know, I see things and I'm like, wow, like, it seems like, you know, this one specific team, everyone on this team has a hamstring injury or everyone on this team has a sprained ankle. Like what, like what goes on in that training program? Whereas you look at some teams you look, and, and their injury report, you don't see those same things. And maybe they're, you know, a different kind of injury, a different style. How much of that is at play as far as like, you know, is that so much looking at that and saying, okay, well, this team doesn't have a great program in place, or maybe they don't have the best fit between player and system and, like how much of that do you think that you know plays a role? Because it's 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 pretty it's pretty pretty relevant almost every season for the last four years, especially with the data that you've been showing. Yeah, um, well, you know what I will say. I say the gambling sites and the fantasy sites have some of the best stats because they're because there's money riding on it, right? So yeah. if you follow those sites, everybody's on top of the number of injuries and all that. So it's it's quite interesting. Um, yeah. But I would say that. If you look at a team and there's a problem, um, you have to look at a couple of things. You can't, like everybody's like, well, the medical staff must suck. Well, the medical <laughs> staff are usually dealing with it after, right? So then you go, well, it must be the strength and conditioning staff. Well, okay, but the strength and conditioning staff don't have a lot of time to prepare. They have five weeks in the off season, then they don't see them for five or six weeks, and then training camp starts. And you might have a 30-minute lift twice a week. So it's, it's very hard to pin it on, on just the staff because there's so many other things going on in the players' lives. You can start to look at how they practice. I think that's the big thing because some teams probably practice more aggressively than others for whatever reason. And that might mean, you know, maybe more full contact. Maybe they try to, because there's been some contraction of the, the practice times and all that. So and I've heard that some coaches, like if you used to have two and a half hours per practice and now you have an hour and a half, they just try to densify it to fit in that hour and a half. So if you're trying to do that, you're trying to squeeze more out of the out of the orange, right? And I think that's what you have to start looking at is what is happening in practice. And I know they have the NFL has mandated GPS monitoring of practice. And but even then, like there can you get the nuances of practice? Like they have uh the GPS, which measures speed and distance and all that. And then they have, uh, inertial measurements, um, you know, from the devices too. So you can look at direction change, but can you look at how the foot is hitting the ground at different times and how much torque and how much for those type of movements? I don't know. So if, if you've designed a practice that's going to try to simulate the intensity of the game, 
uh, and you're doing that several times in the week throughout the season, maybe that's something that we have to look at a little closer. And then, you know, again, you can start talking about, well, what kind of cleats are they using? Cause there was a, there was a team I was helping out. One of the guys on the team, a receiver, uh, tore his Achilles tendon. And when we started digging deeper into the, the whole thing, I found out that he wanted this player wanted to wear a new pair of cleats every week because he thought he was like Michael Jordan, like you could change your shoes out. But <laughs> if you've played football, you know that the cleats are really stiff and you got to break them in. So oh, yeah. if you're wearing a stiff cleat every week and it hasn't been broken in, that's going to manifest itself in something higher up in the chain in your Achilles tendon. So, so you have to really you know, take a CSI approach to this and start looking at case by case and what is going on. And then when you find out, okay, we've got the sh- the footwear thing figured out, we've got the surface figured out, um, we figured out training loads and we, we know that this player is doing the right things in the off season. It's so hard to pin it down. Like if you're a fantasy owner or you're gambling on something, like you need <laughs> inside information on this player and what's going on. Uh, to really get a better idea of, of, of where to put your money. Um, but certainly you'll see tendencies with certain teams in practice. Like I, I know because of the work I've done with the Chiefs, I think Andy Reid has a pretty good gauge of how to stress the players from training camp to early season to midseason to late season and all that and into the postseason. So he has a feel as a coach. Uh, is it science-based? Probably not. It's probably very, very intuitive for him. And they seem to do pretty well, at least, you know, in the last six years, seven years, um, with not having a lot of catastrophic injuries. Um, and yeah. then there's other teams I won't mention where they've had a lot of problems, um, you know, and, and people will blame the field, this, that, and the other. But I think it comes down to the way you practice and the things that you do on a day-to-day basis. In your research over the last four years, like what... Have you found that's kind of been not so much like the the wow, but maybe like the light bulb moment that's kind of led you to that there's more here and in the the nuances of the different seasons. I think one thing about the last four seasons is one of them came on the heels of a pandemic where largely no one, most people didn't have as many distractions because there wasn't much to do. Um, and if I'm not if I'm remembering correctly, that year the data was a little different from the the charts that you had versus the other ones. Was there something to that? Um, I, I think people are overplaying it a bit. Like, um, cause if you look at, like I looked at 2020 to 2023, like four years there and you know, the, the incidence of the injuries changed at what time of year, but the totals didn't really change that much. Um, you know, and so I, I don't know, I, I, I think it does come down to the end, like how the athlete is treating themselves throughout the year. So are they getting a nice distribution of work throughout the year? Or is it like once the season ends, they just sit around for two months and then, you know, maybe do a little bit here and then they take more time off. And so I don't know. I think the way the collective bargaining agreement is arranged in the NFL, it looks like they're trying to give the players more time away from the facility and not as much demand on the players. You know, that's that's the players union going, hey, we're doing a lot in the season and we just want to give them a break. And I understand that. Um, but it used to be, like if I talk to some old school strength coaches, like I know Jerry Palmieri who worked with the Giants 
for quite a while when they won their two Super Bowls most recently, right? And he would tell me about they had, you know, 12 to 16 weeks of strength and conditioning where players would come in and they would work on strength and all these, you know, other capacities. Um, where now you have five weeks, you have uh, two weeks where it's strength and conditioning in the off season and then another three weeks, but then practice has expanded in the off season. So you have more specific stuff being done. So the OTA period, it goes two, three, four. So two weeks of strength and conditioning, three weeks of strength and conditioning and individual work. And then you have OTAs, which are off season practice. And they'll say walk through and whatever, and there's no contact, but they're still doing a lot of specific movement drills related to the game. And so if you're running the same patterns and you're the defensive back doing the same back pedals all through that period, that's what's expanded. And the general preparation of strength and conditioning has shrunk. So I think that's part of it. I think the preparation periods have shrunk. So, you know, in the old days, you had a lot of time for preparation and building up general qualities. Where now it's all just football specific and everything you see, um, if you look at social media for people who work with pro athletes, they're not doing boring stuff. They're not doing like boring weight room stuff and, 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 you know, run tempo runs for capacity and just general preparation stuff. You'll see like specific drills where they're getting moved with the ball and it's just all heading that way that specific will get you better but it's not going to make you healthier. And I think that's the problem is we're moving away from being generally fit. And I have a friend who works in Arizona who works with pro athletes and does all their rehab. And that's what he sees. They come in and it's nice to be able to pinpoint what the cause is. But the big thing that he sees is they're just not generally fit. They have poor body composition. They have poor muscular endurance. They have poor um, just general endurance. Um, so cardiovascularly, they're not in great shape. Um, they might be very elastic and they might be able to throw the ball really hard or, you know, as a pitcher or a quarterback, but maybe their movement quality isn't as good as it could be. And their general fitness isn't as good as it could be. So I think that's what's happening. And we go back to our original discussion around, well, do they have a, a multi-sport development as a youth? And how long did they carry that through until they were, you know, a pro? You know, and, and I think college is a little better because they have longer preparatory periods and they have more time with strength and conditioning staff. Um, so, but once they get into the pros, you're kind of left on your own a bit and it gets more competitive and intense in terms of the, the competition schedule. So I think it's, it's this big comprehensive, um, you know, system that has to be analyzed. It's not as simple as like, it's the shoes, it's the, you know, whatever it's, you know, or it's, it's nutrition, but maybe that's it too. Maybe the quality of our food is degrading a bit, um, over, over reliance on supplementation and, and not natural sources, but that's not my area, but, but I would certainly look into that as well. Yeah. It's funny that you, you mentioned, uh, nutrition because sometimes, you know, they'll catch a player, and they'll talk about their diet and you're expecting like you've got a freak athlete and you're expecting to hear, you know, four salad meals is a good protein intake. We're prioritizing, you know, nutrients, whole foods, stuff like that. And it's like, I eat one meal a day and like four bags of candy. Yeah. And, and the person is just an amazing, incredible athlete. And it's like, like in your head for a second, especially from our shoes as a, uh, a person, a coach in the industry, we're like, what? I, I would have never guessed that that's, you know, what you did on a day to day. 
Yeah, I, I think there's this perception amongst um, general population that these athletes are all doing everything right and they have good trainers and they have personal chefs and they have the best medical staff around them all the time. But you will be shocked at some of the stories I hear about, yeah, they're doing everything wrong, but they're just so talented and genetically, you know, um, prepared, uh, that they overcome all of these things that they're doing wrong until it goes wrong. Right. Um, I think that that's where everybody's kind of like, Whoa. Right. Like, I mean, do we, uh, do we all, each of us, do we honestly know what Aaron Rodgers is doing for his physical preparation? What's he's eating? Um, you know, what other things is he taking? Right. We don't know. Um, so, you know, that's, that's for something that he, for him to, to look at and review, but I would say that for every athlete, are you following them 24 hours a day and making sure they're putting the right things in their body and doing all the extra work to make sure that they're physically fit and recovering and, and, and you'll see once in a while, like you look at like Kobe Bryant. I remember meeting his, his strength coach. This was years ago, like 20 years ago. And, you know, he kind of went over everything that they were doing. Um, and it was a comprehensive program. And, and he paid that guy to follow him around the world throughout the year. Um, but how many people are doing that? You'll hear about Tom Brady. He had his, his staff. And so there's a few people doing that, but not everybody's doing that. So, yeah. So I, I came across and it, it surprises me too. When you hear about the routines and stuff like that, um, I came across a video and this just kind of put a thought in my head. Um, and I'd love to hear as far your opinion, as far as maybe it's something that could be another contributing factor too. Uh, do you think that every so often in sports and maybe we see it now more, um, an athlete comes along that just from a genetic standpoint is just so different to everything from a, a physics standpoint that uh, the sport has seen. I, I, an athlete that comes to mind is Michael Vick. When he was at, there was a game at Virginia Tech uh, bowl game where he was being interviewed about it. And he's talking, uh, paraphrasing here that he was uh, popping dudes ACLs left and right. And like, he's making his runs. And if everyone remembers the Michael Vick experience back in the early two thousands, the guy was fast. The guy came in the NFL, he did the same thing. But in that specific game, they were showing got players actually trying to tackle him and, you know, getting injured, hurting their knees, spraining joints, uh, a couple ACR, ACL tailors from that game. Is it something that maybe we're seeing more athletes of that caliber enter the playing field that might be in that kind of changes the dynamics of the game when you look at people like, you know, you have like someone like Tyree Kill, who's incredibly fast and probably faster than, you know, most people on the planet. Is that something that plays a role, do you think? I mean, it's a very good question. Um I, I, I don't, I, I don't think there's that much variation in somebody's, you know, genetic ability. And, and I, I think there's a lot of really good athletes out there now. Um, are there nuances that they're doing or is that their environment produce something, you know, that's, that's exceptional possibly. Um, you know, I think it's very circumstantial, but, but certainly we don't know again, what everybody's doing. Like, I don't want to, you know, paint everybody and saying that they're doing, you know, performance enhancing drugs and all that, but, but it is out there. Like, you know, I, I, I had spent 10 years working with Ben Johnson's coach, uh, Charlie Francis. And, and, you know, we found out that they were doing certain things and other people in that race were doing certain things. And it's kind of like, Oh, that was back then. But I think everything's advanced significantly and there's still 
that going on out there. There's still performance enhancing drugs being used. I don't know who's using them, um, but there, there could be an explanation for a lot of the things that we see out there that look amazing, but it, it also could be an explanation for why there's more catastrophic injuries. Maybe they're being amped up to a degree where their body just can't handle um, these forces and these outputs uh, on a regular basis. So I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I think it's very interesting. Um, you know, and on top of it, there's all these other demands that are newer on people in terms of like social media and all the stresses and technology. And I, I think, I think, you know, there's a lot of variables that we're just not accounting for. So I would love to think that there's like genetic freaks out there that once in a while pop up, but usually there's a more simple explanation for it. Um, you know, so it's, uh, it, it's interesting though. Like it, it does make it interesting if you're in this field and, and you're trying to go, okay, why is that person good? What makes them good? Uh, is there a developmental model that we can follow? Was it pure luck? Was it just circumstances uh, combined to make them a great athlete? Like if you look at uh, Patrick Mahomes, um, maybe there was a certain combination of his father being a major league baseball player and the environment he was in, it was more a little baseball centric, but he also played basketball and football. And maybe all those things came together along with the fact that he got drafted or, or uh, yeah, drafted by the Chiefs and he had Andy Reid to help supervise his development and he didn't play his first year and worked under Alex Smith. Maybe all of those things came together and made what he is now. Um, and it can't necessarily be duplicated by everybody. So I think there's a lot of that happening where it's just, you know, the stars align, the planets align for that person and it works out where it can't necessarily work for everyone that way. Sure. I, th I think Pat is a great example. Um, he's in the quarterback documentary on Netflix and they, you kind of see a little bit of his day to day. Um, and he has his trainer and he is strength training and they're also doing drills and it's not always, uh, one way or the other. And then you look at him on the field and when he's just kind of walking around normally, he's a little awkward looking. And then when it's go time, like he just shifts into almost like, like obviously NFL players refer to him as a magician, but just from the eye test, he just shifts into the super athletic being that, you know, can make all these cuts and, you know, get into these different shapes that allow him to be successful. Yeah, he's unique to himself, right? So it's not like somebody's going to go like, oh, I'm going to do exactly what he does and see the same result. He's just very unique. So I think there, there's something to that. There's something to finding the right mixture for, you know, every athlete. They have to find that individual, um, those individual qualities that will make them better. But you can't, yeah, you can't create a template and a cookie cutter system. It's just too difficult. So. You know, sometimes it's like a lottery pick, right? You just don't know if you're going to get the numbers come up. Um, so I, I think people are people are always trying to like come up with the secret sauce and the secret formula, and it's 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 so difficult, right? It's like picking, it's like drafting a quarterback. Yeah, you don't know, right? Everybody says, "Oh, well, I knew Patrick Mahomes was going to be like." No, we didn't. I don't. You know, you can say you did, but. You know, it's, it's so difficult. Like in this draft class, is it going to be Caleb Williams? I don't know. Like, is it going to be the guy from North Carolina? It's, it's, it's so up in the air. So, but somebody will win. Somebody will get that guy, you know? So it's funny. I find it interesting every year. Yeah. Last year was a great example when you have, uh, 
you have Bryce Young and CJ Stroud and the conversations going and their eye tests in college, very different from their eye tests in the NFL. Oh yeah. 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 You know, you, it's a license to print money if you can figure it out, but I don't think anybody's going to figure it out. So. Yeah, definitely, definitely not. So let's say I'm someone, um, you're run of the mill, 26 year old. Um, one of the things that you kind of touched on was changes and factors in society that we don't necessarily always look at. One of those things is our just regular posture. We now have social media, we work at desks, we drive around. So you do see a little bit more of, you know, your gen population, uh, human these days, a little bit leading a little bit towards more like a hunchback posture. Um, let's say I, I do work out occasionally two to three times a week. I'm looking to get some athleticism, maybe maintain some, what are some elements that I would want to work into my week? Um, regarding athleticism specifically that would help me maybe if I want to try to run a little bit faster, maybe if I want to move a little bit quicker, have a little bit more power, things like that. What are some things that you would recommend kind of uh, adding into a program like that? For myself, I do rely a lot on the running drills to maintain qualities and also like as a lead into doing more intense qualities. So if I'm just doing things like skipping and running high knees, I know that I'm building the vertical qualities, like the ability to hit the ground and rebound off the ground, elastic qualities. And then I'll mix in like some combinations of different jumps, pogo jumps, single leg, double leg, maybe some bounding and hopping routines. So I'm always very conscious of this ability, ability to create, a, you know, train that reflex action of bouncing off the ground. Cause I think that's the thing we lose very quickly. Um, and may contribute to some of these soft tissue injuries. So uh, if I was, if I'm working with somebody, whether it's in uh, rehab or introducing them to running fast, we spend a lot of time on those types of activities, the drills, the jumps, and even throws, um, because I think it helps create a foundation of work that not only makes you better, but also protects you from these soft tissue injuries. So that's, that's, that's huge. It, looking at throws specifically, um, I, I I personally enjoy the almost like the combination uh, that in some of your drills you have going on where you start off with the ball, you throw it, and then you're running. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, like what that does to the body as you're going through a drill like that. I think it just like it, it's like a starting strength thing, right? So you're obviously going to push something and then follow it up. So I think it's just a good way to prepare the body um, for what's going to proceed after that. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's just like a triggering mechanism and, and, and you won't always have to explode off the line, uh, when you're playing a sport, sometimes you're jogging and then you run fast out of a jog. So I, but I think it, it's a good way for somebody to kind of set up a start, have some sort of power and strength movement at the beginning, because that's all starting is it's, it's, it's a strength, a maximal strength and a power um, quality that you're trying to develop. So it's, 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 it's a good way to, you know, when I work with kids, it really makes them think about this idea that the start is this, it's not this long push, but it should be like, I use the word pulse, like you should pulse off the line. So it should be quick. It shouldn't be a long, hard push because if you, the longer you're on the ground, the harder it is to move fast. So I think it's, it's something that, that really, um, introduces people to this idea of like, okay, let's be quick off the line. 
and then you get some other qualities along with it without having to always be in the weight room. When you talk about running drills, pogos, hops, and stuff like that, uh, and in relation to how long you spend on the ground and trying to build a vertical quality, uh, is there something specific about running on a curved treadmill versus a regular treadmill that either helps or kind of amplifies some of the, some of the mechanical things that we see when people run? Um, I like the curved treadmill mainly because it kind of adapts to me. Whereas if I'm on a motorized treadmill, like I'm picking the velocity, like, oh, I'm going to run 10 miles per hour. And then even when I'm running on that treadmill, it doesn't have enough variability that, that my, that my body would demonstrate. So it feels like I'm following the treadmill. Whereas on the curved treadmill, I'm kind of leading the action and, and determining the velocity. Um, and, and there is a bit of a loading effect because if you, you know, ever been on a curved treadmill, you know that the belt itself is quite heavy. So you have to drive this belt with every step. So there is a, a strengthening quality to that. Um, there, you know, as far as the curve goes, I think there's, you know, different effects on terms of like your landing mechanics versus a flat deck on a, a motorized treadmill. Um, so, you know, it's a little different than running over ground, but, um, I think a combination is not a bad thing. Uh, if, if I'm doing lo a longer steady state run, probably easier to do it on a, a motorized flat treadmill. If I'm doing interval runs where I want to jump on, jump off and just change the velocity, uh, easily, I like the curved treadmill, the manual treadmill, cause I'm kind of determining what that speed is. So that's, that's sort of the differentiation I have with those devices. Yeah, I've seen, uh, working in commercial gyms for quite a few years, I've seen a couple of, uh, the motorized treadmills jump on, jump off kind of accidents and you see people yeah. slip off, which, uh, I, and pers I, I mean, I've done it myself, not the slip off part, thankfully, but like, it's just a very awkward experience, like jumping on a treadmill that's already moving. Um, so, all right. So where can people find you and, uh, what's next for, for you and your team? Right now, if you go to sprintcoach.com or runningmechanics.com, there's information there on whether it's courses or, or, or other educational resources. The Sprint Coach is more like consulting and training where the uh, running mechanics is directly for my courses that I do online, but also we do in person. So I'm hoping to do the running mechanics courses uh, this spring in Arizona. Um, and maybe a few other places. Um, and then the other thing that I'm really focused and, and then on Instagram, it's just Derek M Hansen or, uh, at running mechanics as well. Um, but I, I'm, I'm really spending a little more time right now in developing a course on electrical muscle stimulation. Cause that's something I've worked on for like 20 plus years, 25 years as an adjunct to some of the rehab work that I do and some of the performance work. So um, I'm just going through all the research right now and just trying to solidify, uh, a knowledge base in that area and, and then connect the dots between the running and the use of electrical stimulation. So that's where I'm heading. Awesome. That sounds fascinating. Like I said, he is Derek Hansen. He is an amazing sprint mechanics coach, anything kind of coach. Definitely check him out. Uh, thank you for having me or. Thank you for coming on my show. Yeah, well, um, no, thank you for having me and uh, asking some some pretty uh, important questions. I think uh, we cover a lot of ground that I think needs to be talked about more and more. Oh, absolutely.